Join From Beer to the Bible every week as Irvin Lee and co-host Sarah Oliveira McDonald warn others of the consequences of drug and alcohol addiction by being the voice of faith-based recovery. Every week, Irvin and Sarah help people get access to the treatment and counseling they so desperately need. They explore the depths of addiction and give practical life examples of how to recover and develop a new rhythm of living. The show is gritty, authentic, and simply raw while being rooted in the love, faith, and hope of God. Welcome to From Beer to the Bible. Welcome to From Beer to the Bible. I'm your host, Irvin Lee. And if you look around, we're at a new studio, a new studio. And more importantly, I'm super excited because I have one of my great friends who's passionate, just as passionate as, as I am about recovery, and, but more importantly, recovery in Christ. I'm going to introduce him as Pastor Ben Ward from Gateway Church. Hey, thanks so much. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Yeah. Well, Ben, let's, let's get right into it. Um, we're going to continue along the path of we've been talking and discussing and getting lots of feedback on our topic of the last six weeks, which is being mad at God, mm. being mad at God, being mad at God, which I was in. Honestly, there are still times when I run into circumstances and challenges where I look up and I'm like, God, how could you allow that? Right. But now I have the coping skills and I understand that I can be transparent with God because he already knows. So Talk to us about your testimony and the times you were mad at God. Yeah, yeah. I think from my personal temperament, uh, when I'm angry at yeah. someone, it usually manifests emotionally as disappointment. Yeah. Uh, confusion. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. And I don't understand. Um, and so when, when I think about my story and my journey, it really started with rejection. People ask me all the time, how did you end up as an addict in the shape that you were in, you know, um, and I say rejection. Yeah. That's how I got there. And when I was seven years old, for me, that's when I can look back and go, this is when my universe kind of cracked open mm-hmm. and my parents got divorced. Okay. And so there was just this, you know, disintegration of my whole world as a seven-year-old is family. And that just fell apart. My dad didn't just really divorce my mom, but really me and my brother and sister as well. And so our relationship struggled and then disintegrated over the course of a few years. And so from the time I was about 11 to 23 years old, uh, no, no relationship with my father at all. Just the parental rejection of that, uh, man, it created a gulf a void in my life that as I would get older and approach those young preteen years and teenage years, I would, I would be desperate to fill and to soothe the ache of that. And so really as, um, you know, psychologists even say that rejection is one of the number one things that we are not wired to deal with. It, it absolutely leaves us just empty handed, uh, if no answer for it. We're kind of equipped to deal with all other facets of life, disappointment, loss, um, tragedy. We can recover from those things relatively well, but rejection, we just have no answer for it. 
when your parents got divorced, where was our Heavenly Father in the equation? And then talk about the impact of being rejected by your earthly father, mm -hmm. how that impacted your relationship with your Heavenly Father. Yeah, so I think the reality of um, not knowing him, not having a relationship with him, uh, and equating that with he's not here. And same thing with my dad. My dad was alive, yeah. but I didn't have a relationship with him. Right. And I felt I feel like those paralleled each other throughout my young adult, my teenage years, my young adult years. Mm -hmm. And so my mom was a, a champion, single mom, working full time, you know, just doing the deal for three kids and and we were hard to deal with because we were getting into trouble. And and uh, and so I think the the nurture that she provided, the stability that she provided was definitely something that I can attribute now and say that was God sustaining me, giving me what I needed, you know, to the best of her ability mm -hmm. uh, in those years. Did your mom have a relationship with the Lord and did you guys go to church and all that? Yeah, we were we I would say we were believers. She okay. was a believer. Okay. Uh, I remember going to church some as a as a child, but we weren't really devout. We weren't super committed. Um, never really questioned the existence of God or uh -huh. that you know Jesus wasn't you know who they said he was. I always believed, but I had not surrendered control of my life to him. I had no personal relationship with God at all. So I was disconnected from the love, the acceptance, the power. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, to, to live in freedom and to have a fruitful life. How did you get introduced to drugs, alcohol and all the things? Yeah. Yeah, man. That's, uh, I think coming from that place of broken heartedness and yeah. rejection, uh, you have that thirst. You want to be loved. You want to be accepted. Uh, why was I rejected? Why doesn't my father love me? Why doesn't he want a relationship with me? And from that place of, of thirst, uh, you kind of start approaching relationships as you get older, looking for that from people. Mm -hmm. And it's never enough because it's not total acceptance. Mm -hmm. It's not that God love that you're really wired for. And so as a you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, getting into sexual immorality, looking for acceptance there, that felt like acceptance. Friends felt like acceptance. Uh, so doing drugs and, you know, smoking weed, drinking alcohol, beginning to kind of dabble in that kind of stuff. Also, uh, there was some acceptance there with that group of people, right? But then there was also the effects of the drugs and alcohol, the effects of the sex, uh, on your body, on your soul, which is a numbing agent. It's soothing the ache of that rejection, soothing the ache of the, the reality that you're living in. Uh, and then also I would say part of my personal temperament is that I'm socially shy, I'm a little introverted. And so I really liked how when I started to drink, you know, when I'd eat a couple of pills, Man, it really, I, it woke me up, man. I would come alive socially. I would approach people for conversation. I would approach girls. I mean, it really, I liked that version of myself. Yeah. I understand that. When and at what point did you realize that drugs and alcohol affected you differently from everyone else? 
Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I, it always starts out social. Nobody starts out doing it alone. Yeah. But when I realized I was doing it alone, mm. uh, and then even to the point where I would hide certain things from certain people because they weren't cool with it. Yeah. And these are other people that were using drugs, yeah. you know, so I would take it a little too far, didn't know when to stop. You know, some of my other friends, they would, they would do, you know, party and then they would, they would taper off and they would go home and yeah. I, w I wouldn't. Right. And so there was that little bit of, uh, of that radical, uh, line that I crossed and that's when you get into dangerous and life threatening and, you know, uh, risky mm -hmm. and certain people, they don't, they don't really want to be around. They're not signing up for that. And so they start to distance themselves. Um, so I would say probably when I really, you know, started getting used to doing drugs and alcohol by myself. Yeah, it always starts off so much fun. And then you play the tape through and then all the consequences and the solitude and all the, the sin, the shame. And you realize there was a point I realized I said, this isn't good for me. But I just, I couldn't imagine my life without alcohol, and I couldn't imagine it with alcohol. Did you ever reach that point, and did you ever cry out to the Lord during that time? Yeah, I, I point back to what I call the lowest ebb, mm -hmm. the lowest point of my life in addiction. And... I was an intravenous drug user as well. I mean, I was smoking crack. I was an alcoholic. I was on pills, pharmaceutical, you know, Xanax, Valium, all of those stuff. I was abusing all of it. And of course, it's just wreaking havoc in your yeah. life, your soul, your physical body. Um, but the intravenous drug use took me to the darkest places I've ever been. And I remember one time, I, I, I say this, jokingly i don't i'm not a a theologian i'm i'm not a yeah. scholar i don't have a phd but i have a pre prestigious degree in dumpster theology <laughs> and and the lowest point of my life i remember i had thrown away a handful of needles that we had been using cuz they were they were old and been used a lot and then later on we had more drugs but we didn't have any needles mm -hmm. And I literally went and jumped in that dumpster and wiggled myself down to the bottom of the trash and couldn't see anything. It was nighttime and I was just reaching my hand down there to try to feel one of those needles. And I found them and pulled them out of the dumpster and, and used those to shoot more drugs. And that like, I think it was like a core memory for me in that moment. Like, what, what are you doing? Uh, you know, the reality of what I just did kind of set in. And uh, then I would say right around that same time, I overdosed. Okay. And had this massive seizure. And when I came out of that, I remember, I don't remember any of it, but when I woke up and my friends were standing over me and, you know, they were concerned, they were about to call. You, know, you always wait before you call the police because you want to make sure it's absolutely necessary. And so they were about to call 911, but I woke up, I go into the bathroom and I'm looking in the mirror and I didn't recognize myself. I was pale as a ghost. My eyes were black. My cheeks were sunken in. And I thought, who are you and what have you become? 
And I just, it was like that revelation to go, man, I need help. And that was the very first time that I even had a desire to not use drugs anymore. So I said, you know what? I'm never doing this again. Within 24 hours, yeah. I was I was doing it again by myself in an abandoned apartment. And that's when I picked up the phone, called my mom and said, I, I need help. I'm ready. Whatever, whatever I need to do, I'm ready for help. So when you cried out for help, how and what happened then? How did your mom know how to navigate the recovery space? Yeah, I mean, as you know, in this in this uh, line of work, it's yeah. word of mouth. It yeah. goes a long way. Yeah. And a neighbor had seen some drama and some police at my house from time to time. And she knew that I was obviously struggling and she slipped over to my mom one day and she said, Hey, if Ben ever gets ready for help, I know of a place. Wow. And that phrase always stuck with me. I know of a place, the power of just knowing of a place that you can refer somebody to in a time of need. You don't have to have all the answers, but if you just know of a place, that's what I love about what you guys are doing. Because you're you're educating yourself on places that can change people's lives in a time of crisis. And she goes, I know of a place and I know where I'm going to take you. And that's what she did. The reason, one of the reasons I, I sat here before you and we do what we do is I watched my wife struggle for 48 hours. She mm -hmm. was crying. Drunk husbands going nuts, and no one knew a place, right? It's just on the internet, and we never want anyone to have that experience, yep. and that's why we started from beer to the Bible. So you get to the place, yep. and when does the good Lord show up, and how does the healing take place? Yeah, as soon as I walked in the door, this is a, a, a Christian faith-based recovery program, inpatient, 90 days. And it's connected to a local church where I'm from in Shreveport, Louisiana. And so I remember walking in the door and feeling love and acceptance from the guys, not even from the staff, it's yeah. from the other residents there. Yeah. And I just thought, they don't even know me. They're being so kind and so nice. And I just walked in thinking, okay, and they showed me to my room and I'm putting all my stuff away and just had this uh, instant sense the of I belong here. I don't really want to be here, yeah. but I belong here. And so that was really the first uh, kind of drawing and opening up of my heart. I was really just honestly searching for sobriety. I thought if I could get off of drugs and alcohol, all my problems would go away. Hmm. Yeah. I remember thinking the same thing. But encourage that first step, while it's frightening, while it is very scary, encourage those who are suffering and struggling around taking that first step because that's the step of surrender and that's the, the faith that God calls us to have. Yeah, I always say never waste a good crisis. Mm. Uh, it is the grace of God that sin hurts so bad yeah. that it causes so much pain and destruction. And in that pain, his heart is cry out to me, yeah. seek me, yeah. turn control of your life over to me. And I know that um, for me, there was a desperation for change that had to be there yeah. that overrode my desperation to get high, my desperation for drugs and alcohol. 
And so once I got to that place where I was more desperate for change than anything else, that's, I, I believe that's what gave me the motivation that I needed to take that step, to, to pick up that phone, to make that phone call and say, I need help. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Uh-huh. When did you have that life-altering, changing encounter with Christ? Yeah, I, it was right. I'm, I think it was like the first week, you know, it's always yeah. a little blurry. It's oh, a little fuzzy, yeah. but I think it was literally the first week that they would take us to church, load us up in vans and they would drive us to the church every weekend. And back then it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Uh, and I remember walking into this place and I guess I had never really felt the presence of God. Um, and I remember standing in this sanctuary worships going on. There's about a thousand people in the room. It's a big room. It was intimidating. And I remember having this feeling of this is what I've been looking for. I was in the presence of God with the people of God. And there was a peace that I was feeling, uh, that was, it was supernatural. Yeah. And I, and I had that thought, like, this is, this is what I've been looking for. And, uh, so you have the encounter and walk us through kind of how you have the encounter and now you're a pastor and your life starts to change and, and, and the Christ starts to transform you. Yeah. Yeah. That day, uh, the pastor gave an invitation to come down and give your life to Jesus. Yeah. And I did, and I remember the spot that I was standing in. I could take you to it to this day. I could get within a couple of feet of it. I mean, that's the the encounter that I had with Jesus that day. And I had tried up until that point, you know, I had made noble efforts to try and quit, to do better, to manage my addiction, to to choke it back a little bit. Uh, All failures, you know, never even came close to being able to even throttle it. And so I'm standing there surrendering control, uh, praying and receiving Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And I just remember walking away from that moment on the van ride back to the program I was at, feeling hope for the future. And I would never felt hope for the future because, you know, part of my my anger with God, my my disappointment with God was, God, you made me broken. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had heard things like once an addict, always an addict, and and you're just going to always struggle and you're never going to be like everybody else. Yeah. And I, I believed that. And I thought, man, I'm broken. And God, I didn't make myself. Yeah. So there was that confusion of, I, I don't think God makes mistakes. I don't think he errors like that, but I'm certainly defective. Yeah. So I remember feeling hope for the future, that freedom was possible, Mm -hmm. that it was this kind of inward knowing that I could be who God created me to be and I could do what God created me to do, that there was still hope for that. Mm -hmm. The importance of hope when you're suffering from addiction cannot be overrated and it certainly cannot be underrated, right? When I peel back the onion of why did I stay in my addiction so long was I lost hope. Yeah. I even look back at pictures and I said, man, that guy had no hope. My eyes were dead. Right. I remember my spirit. I just, 
felt like, what's the way out? And talk about how Christ shows up, he becomes Lord, and he becomes Savior, and he shows you the way out. Yeah, I love Philippians 2.13 that says, For God is at work within you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. That's a perfect picture of what was happening in my life at the time. Yeah. I had Before that moment, God was not at work within me. Yeah. And after that moment, he was. And the evidence of those desires beginning to change that I, I thought could never change, right? I'm just going to have to manage this my whole life. They started to change. And then coupling that with the power to do, he doesn't just change our desire and then go, go hey, go figure it out. Yeah. He changes our desire and gives us the power to do what pleases him. And we know, obviously, Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, it broke the power of sin and death. Mm -hmm. As the you know, power of addiction is really borrowed from the power of sin and death. And when it broke that, and it changed those desires. Now I'm sitting in a new opportunity at life. You know, I have a chance to do this again. And that was the hope that I felt. Talk about the importance of changing your people, places, and things, because that tends oh, to be one of the most difficult things that one has to encounter when they are uh, pursuing recovery. Yeah, yeah. So I, I talk about this a lot. There's there's two sides of it. Spiritually, it's the presence of God. Like addiction recovery, spiritually, is all about the presence of God. Every human issue or problem is ultimately a deficiency of God's presence. Because everything God is comes from his presence. Love, acceptance, power, mercy, forgiveness, right? All of those things that we need, they come from his presence. Yeah. And, but practically it's new and right people, places, and things, new and right people, places, and things. And that's what you have to be focused on in the natural when you're making daily decisions. You know, when you have a new lease on life, you have a chance to start over, you really want to clear the slate. Yeah. I mean, you got to forsake old and wrong people, old and wrong places and old and wrong things. And if you, if you notice yourself returning back to old and wrong stuff, you're going to end up back on, on the wrong path and get the same results. Yes. And so really embracing that new and right people, places, and things is the key uh, practically in, in addiction recovery. Discuss, I see two derailers of people in recovery. One is the lack of understanding that God is love. And the other one is that God did not make them defective. Yeah. Yeah. Man, uh, you know, when you talk about rejection and addiction, the answer for rejection is total acceptance. Uh, Satan's favorite ministry is rejection. You know, that's because that's what happened to him. Yeah. He rebelled against God. And God rejected. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's how fast he was rejected from heaven. And so he was rejected. Therefore, his favorite ministry is rejection. But Jesus' favorite ministry is reconciliation. Yeah. And so the total acceptance of Christ uh, washed away the power of rejection in my life. 
And so it's that spirit of adoption that washes away, that pushes out that spirit of rejection. And so then with addiction, it's the presence of God that leads to freedom. And so my focus, and I didn't even know this at the time, this is like God showing me this, like, hey, do you want to know what changed? Do you want to know what transforms you? And then he just begins showing me all the governing principles of freedom and and relational health and all of those things that have to be put back together. Because that day when I was riding back on the van after surrendering my life to Christ, I felt hope. I knew everything's going to be okay, but practically, naturally, nothing had changed. I still had DAs wanting to put me in jail. I still owed money to the court systems. I still owed people money. All my relationships were broken. Uh, I mean, my life was in a deficit. Every area of my life was broken, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, financially, legally. I mean, I was still in trouble, but I knew everything was going to be okay. And, and, and it was. Every single one of those things worked out as I began to operate in the principles of God that he began to show me. And so I think I answered your question. You, you did. And I, this is one thing I watch a lot of interviews and I see people, I see athletes say it from really bad backgrounds. I'm not supposed to be here. And, and I want to address that a little bit. The Lord had to work on my heart. Like I'm supposed to be here. You're supposed to be here because it shows the transforming power of the Lord God through the Holy Spirit equipping us, comforting us, leading us, guiding us, the miracles that he can do in and through us. So talk about accepting the fact that I look at you and I see a miracle. I see that God is almighty, all powerful. I see his grace. I see his love. I see his anointing. And I accept that. So you are supposed to be here because you're not only blessing me, you're blessing his other children and more importantly, the children that he's trying to get to come in from the rain and let him do the same thing for him, for them. Yeah, so so just to clarify, what you're, you're asking is, what, am I supposed to be here? Well, I'm I'm saying having gone through what I went through. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah people yeah. always say, well, I'm not supposed to be here. And I'm thinking I had to take that apart. Yeah. You have a divine appointment. That's right. You went through all the you went through the pain, the sin, the shame for him to get you right here at this moment, because he has people that I couldn't reach with my story that you can now reach with your story. So it's a divine appointment right. that you to, are to be at Gateway doing what yeah. you're doing, just like it's your divine appointment to be here and walk in the freedom mm-hmm. from all the things that you yeah. just said. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just the result of, of God's redemption. You know, that's what redemption does. It literally reaches back into time and it sets the past right. And it, it sets things in alignment with God. And then he takes you right there in the present and he begins to set your heart and your mind and renew your mind and give you the truth that you need to live in freedom and rebuild relationships, that spirit of reconciliation at work in your life, healing, physically healing my mind and my lungs and my heart from all the damage that I did. And there's this this reconciliatory work, this redeeming work 
that's happening even in the present, and then the power of redemption to even look into the future mm. and say, you're, you're, you will be saved. Yeah. Uh, your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. All the consequences of those sins are set right. Yeah. And understanding that, I think you're like, you know what? Uh, God spoke to me one time and he said, I'm going to use every single bad thing that ever happened to you because that's how redemption works. Mm-hmm. I mean, he said, I'm going to use it all. Every story, every bit of pain, every bit of rejection, all the mistakes you made, knowing that they were bad decisions and doing them anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen that now, you know, 20, 20 plus years of living in freedom. I've seen that, you know, to be true, you know, not just in the beginning when it's fresh. Yeah. But here I am 20 plus years later. And my favorite thing to do is to minister freedom to people. Man, amen. Very well said. So tell us what your life is like now and what you do vocationally. So my uh, one of the things in those early years, uh, even still in the recovery center, I actually started RAing on the weekends and working out there, and um, and then you know got on staff at the church. Really began to feel that God was calling me to ministry. So I did all the things. I went to Bible college. I got credentialed in ministry, and then I went to college and got my bachelor's degree. Then I got my master's in counseling. And I knew that God was calling me to be a pastor, but he said, I want you to better equip yourself to serve my people. And a counseling degree is one of the best things that you can do. So I became a licensed clinical Christian counselor. And really, I think, you know, early on, I was doing all recovery ministry. And then God began to kind of branch me out into other areas of discipleship and young adult ministry and counseling ministry, marriage counseling, it just kind of evolved a little bit as I grew and learned and matured. Um, but that that heart of of always ministering to those struggling with addiction has always been there. It's still my favorite thing to do. And so over the years, I feel like what God really has called me to and gifted me to mm-hmm. is teaching biblical principles. Uh, those governing principles that if we if we know them and we apply them to our life, they are going to work. They are going to change my mental state, my emotional state, my relational state. And so really looking at um, the whole individual and how can I help get people moving towards health in those areas yeah. is is what I'm most passionate about. And so I think that understanding freedom is probably the most crucial thing you can do yeah. uh, in those, especially in those early stages of recovery. Mm-hmm. This is one of the hardest things that I see, right? When I go around talking about recovery and addiction recovery, talk to the churches around removing the stigma mm-hmm. of addiction. Cause you can walk in and say, fell down, I cheated on my wife, or I watched something I shouldn't have. But when the guy shows up and says, I'm addicted to pills, I'm addicted to shooting dope in my arm, it's kind of, whoa, not a lot of churches are remembering that God is love and he came for the sick. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, those are those are gritty issues when you have sex addiction and porn and 
you're, you know, you're in jail and you're trying to get out because you want to come to this program and then you're in church uh, and people are understanding that just last week you were breaking the law and you were a menace to society and I don't want you around my kids and all of those kind of things. But as the church, that is the business that we're in. Yeah. I mean, it is our calling. It is, you know, the heart of the father Mm -hmm. to save the lost children and it's messy. Yeah. And so I thankfully ended up at a church that understood how to roll up their sleeves and get down in the ditch with people and, and help, help them out. You know, it's that Lazarus coming out of the grave, but yes, Hey, Hey, help him get those grave clothes off. It's messy, it's stinky. Uh, but there has to be a body of people in the church that are like, Hey, that's what we're going to do. Um, I thankfully haven't ever experienced, I know they're out there, but I haven't experienced those churches that would kind of turn their nose up at Mm -hmm. people like that. Uh, thankfully the church I was at in Shreveport, the church I'm at now are very open armed and Hey, come on. We're not scared of your problems. We're not scared of your pain. We're not, we're not afraid of the mess. Like we're ready to get down here with you and help you. Yeah. I, and, and thank you because we both go to gateway and you're a pastor there. And when I walked in, I've said it many times, man, I just was like, Oh, these people are going to accept me. And all I found is love. I'm still there. So I want to get that message out to other churches when they see you and I, that gives hope. And one of the things we try to do with our show is to show the range and the latitude and the impact of addiction on people from all backgrounds, all colors and demographics. Hey man, this thing does not discriminate. So uh, I have so enjoyed having you on the show. We got to have you back again. And I want you to close this out with whatever the Lord has put on your heart um, to encourage our, our viewers and listeners. Yeah, I really, I do have something on my heart. Thank you for yeah. that. Um, and it's really more for the family members, the loved ones yeah. of those struggling with addiction. And um, it's, it, it is hard. I actually want to just look right into the camera as yes. I say this, because it is one of the hardest things you will ever do is to love someone who is struggling with addiction and know that, that you know that they love you and you know that they love their kids and you know that they love their family, but there's that thing that's just overriding all of that. And, and you don't know what to do and they don't know what to do. And this is what someone said to my mom when she was enabling me uh, in my addiction And they said, you've got to stop giving him everything that he needs. You got to pull back. You have to embrace that tough love. Um, Because as long as you're giving him everything that he needs, he's going to continue to live exactly the way that he's, he's living. And I remember reading in the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And it says that he was starving. He was in the pig pen. You know, he had left the father's house and squandered everything on wild living and partying. And he's in this pig pen of addiction and sexual immorality. And he looks at the pods that they're feeding the pigs. And it says that it looked good to him. He was starving. He was hungry. Then it says this, but no one gave him anything. That's verse 16, Luke 15, 16. 
no one gave him anything. The very next verse says, when he finally came to his senses. Mm. And I think there's a correlation between backing up, letting some of the consequences of the of that person's actions and sin fall on them, and them coming to their senses. Yeah. I know for me that happened. Yeah. So I just want to encourage people out there that are maybe in the in the throes of that uh, situation. It's hard, but if you will get your hands off. God will get his hands on and he will do the thing that you could never do. And I want to close this out by just saying, I don't know that I've ever really addressed this on the show, but I want to thank my wife, Lorraine, for staying with me until I came to myself, until, like Ben just said, until I came to my senses and realized that I didn't have to live the way I was. So thank you, honey. She calls herself the executive producer. And I said to her, is that all you're going to do? She says, well, I stayed with you while you were a fool and you were in your active addiction. So thank you, honey. We love you. And I want to leave everyone with this thought. God can do what he did for Ben and I for you. Whatever struggle, problem, circumstance, trial, tribulation, or addiction. If you just remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it starts with, do not lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your own understanding, but allow the power of God to work in and through you. In and through you. And he will. God is not mad at you. God loves you. And God has a great plan for your life. We will see you next week on From Beer to the Bible. Thank you for tuning in to this week's From Beer to the Bible. Make sure to tune in next week when Irvin and Sarah gift you with even more addiction recovery information. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And remember, we're always there for you.